Greetings, everyone. Uh, welcome to Canadian Meets the South, episode 14. Henry Clay, the man who would be president. Uh, by James Clotter. Um, I know it's uh, another one focused on Henry Clay, but uh, I'll tell you what I... I read and it was it was mostly focused on his presidential campaigns not just the ones in which he was on the tick on the ticket for the general election so that would be 1824 1832 and 1844 but also his failed attempts at getting the nomination in 1840 and 1848 um he was so Henry Clay, as you know, I'm not the biggest fan of. He is the political idol of Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln got the idea of the American system from Henry Clay, um, which includes a high protective tariff and internal improvements and a, and a central bank. Henry Clay, um, sorry, Abraham Lincoln was able to win the nomination against William Seward, who was the front runner for the Republicans, um, by essentially pandering to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was a strong manufacturing state and they really wanted the high protective tariff he made sure that the pennsylvanians the uh the republican party under, uh, understood that he was an old henry clay tariff wig um but there isn't that much talk of of Henry Clay being, let's say, the intellectual heir to Alexander Hamilton. Um, and certainly he was, he, Henry Clay, was no Federalist. In 1798, as a young man, around 21, in Kentucky, he spoke out against the alien and sedition laws so um he was also i don't remember but it was mentioned his his education involved um the the teacher of john Mar marshall and some other founding fathers um from virginia as a young man, he had studied under this, under John Marshall's teacher as as well, and I I think this would also include Monroe and Jefferson, but I'm not, I don't remember. But he was, you know, a a lawyer. Oh, I I think it. He also, uh, you know, um, looked up to Patrick Henry. Or maybe the, the teacher was from 
Patrick Henry. Unfortunately, this was very early in the book. And I don't even remember Henry Clay's teacher's name. But I do remember John Marshall had also taught. Uh, yeah. uh, but John Marshall was also taught by Clay's teacher. And it also brought up how Clay had four daughters and they all died young. Well, two of them had children and he had five sons, but they, none of them lived up to Henry Clay, those sons. Um, what else is there to say? Uh, I guess, um, we can talk about the five, the five, uh, electorals, uh, elections. Um, the, the first one, 24, um, so he, he, um, he needed to be in the top three and he didn't, and there were certainly some shenanigans going on because, um, how it was in 1824, Calhoun had dropped out to, to run for vice president. Um, okay. And so there were four. Initially, there were five, but then Calhoun dropped. The Besides Henry Clay, there were Andrew Jackson, William Crawford, and John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams had New York, I mean, New England, locked up. Uh, and Andrew Jackson was also a Westerner. He was like this, like, Kentuckian... Tennessee were southern states, but they were also considered the West. And um, he, uh, Andrew Jackson was a rival Westerner to Henry Clay. And William Crawford had the the rest of the South. Um, so New York was considered a, a swing vote, and I guess Pennsylvania. But Clay was not able to get with to be the top three and uh he became speaker of the house that did that did not well he was speaker of the house at the time but he did not have uh a, he did not guarantee that that he had the it was not guaranteed that he had the power to sway people in in the house to vote for his preferred candidate um, and what was interesting was, um, his, his exchange with his, with James Buchanan, uh, so I believe, um, Buchanan could say got it wrong. Uh, I don't remember everything, but Buchanan had asked Clay if, well, uh, if uh, if Henry Clay would take Secretary of State if he supported Andrew Jackson, but Clay declined, and uh, Andrew Jackson didn't understand Buchanan when he relayed when he relayed this message. Uh, he thought that Clay had asked for Secretary of State, not Buchanan, when Buchanan told Jackson, but. Uh, he, he got confused 
And the, the book by Claudio makes a case that there was no corrupt bargain. Um, it was only after, uh, with John Quincy Adams, it was only after Adams had won that he's, he offered Secretary of State to Henry Clay. Um, why was Secretary of State so important? Because it was considered the stepping stone to the presidency. Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe were all Secretaries of State before eventually becoming president. Although Jefferson wasn't was first vice president before before becoming president. And so Henry Clay accepting uh become becoming John Quincy Adams Secretary of State was considered the corrupt bargain and it would haunt him for the rest of his the times that he would try to become president. Everyone would bring up the corrupt bargain charge, even though it wasn't uh, that way. Another, um, yeah, it was his biggest mistake to ex assume the Secretary of State because, well, looking back at it, uh, the position, looking at back at it, well, not only did he lose his speakership, but he also had lost uh uh he credibility with some people there were there were just some people who couldn't vote for him because of the corrupt bargain um or the the alleged corrupt bargain uh some of his advisors told him not to accept it, and others did told, tell him to accept the position of secretary of state and Looking back at it, it was a mistake. He should have stayed as Speaker of the House and controlled his... In and maybe one day he, his other presidential chant, uh, attempts would have been better. But um, I also learned that like as Secretary of... Uh, as Speaker of the House in, I think, 1818 or 1819... That was when he coined the term American system. But I don't know, he was, he wasn't, which was, you know, similar to Alexander Hamilton's American school, uh, which is in contrast to the British school, which of economics, which believed in laissez-faire, you know, free trade. Uh, what else can I say? Then, move. Um, Henry. So the corrupt bargain is part of how Henry Clay, uh, how um, Al, uh, John Quincy Adams loses loses eighteen twenty eight. Um, under as the running under the banner of the National Republicans, and then. In, same thing with 1832, Henry Clay loses that. And part of the reason why is um, in 1832 was William Wirt, who was uh, the attorney general under 
James Monroe and John Quincy Adams. Uh, he ran as the anti-Masonic candidate, and he certainly took votes from Clay, as Andrew Jackson was a Mason. One thing to say about Andrew Jackson was that he um, he was he embodied the idea of a military chieftain, a dictator in Clay's eyes, and yeah, they they were uh, the Clay's party named the Whigs would be were called the Whigs in the in opposition to Andrew Jackson's Tories. And if you understand, if you know like the history in England, the Whigs and the Tories during um, the 17th century were the, the two main factions in the English Parliament uh, during um, during the the time of the English Bill of Rights and the Revolution of 1688 1689. <clears throat> the the Tories were loyal to the king, and the Whigs were against the king's abuse of power, and were in favor of decentralizing power to the parliament. More power to the parliament, and therefore to the people. Um, I guess another thing to bring up was that Henry Clay was originally against the Bank of the United States in 1811, and then five years later, in 1816, he is in favor of the Bank of the United States, and his enemies used this against him, saying that he was a political, political charlatan. Next, uh, uh, and the bank was um, a political thing in the 1832 election. Um, 1836, and the Whigs had formed, but they couldn't agree on a single candidate. Uh, Daniel Webster was one of the one was one of the ones one of the candidates in the the North because in 1836 the Whigs had three candidates. They couldn't get to get behind one guy. Uh, and so their hope was to deny Van Buren an electoral college majority by gaining support, by gaining, by deny, uh, by sending three candidates and who had different strengths um, into different regions. Um, he was supposed to win the North, uh, Daniel Webster, but Webster was not happy that Clay didn't really endorse him from the get-go. In fact, was Clay was kind of more sympathetic to William Henry Harrison. And uh, I forgot the the Southerner who was in it. I mean, Harrison was born in Virginia, but and his father was a governor in Virginia, but it wasn't. He wasn't a slave owner. He was a, he was a but he was a, a military hero from the War of eighteen twelve. Uh, next. You have, um, the eighteen forty election. This one was interesting. Clay 
as a, uh, the three the three guys were all the three candidates for the Whig nomination were all born in Virginia. Winfield Scott, General Winfield Scott, General William Henry Harrison, and Henry Clay, and the generals were may have been born in Virginia, but neither of them were slave owners, and um, Clay was so it's kind of. You could call it gross if you want. Identity politics. The the uh, the the Southern Whigs would were backing Clay. Um, but the problem was that four of the Southern states didn't have representation at the convention in eighteen thirty nine. So um, that uh, initially Clay had a plurality. But um, due to you know some shenanigans from the the men who were against him, and uh, enough uh, Scott supporters who weren't weren't the biggest Scott supporters, they were just against Clay. They defected to Harrison, and Harrison had won the nomination because of that. Um, so that and. It was said that 1840 was considered the, the best time if he had won uh, for Clay to have won the nomination because the Democrats were going down in 1840. But um, what was interesting was Tyler was unanimous as vice president. I, I guess oh, at the convention. Um, and very funnily enough, when he becomes president, president a few months uh he would be read out of the Whig party a few months a few months after he becomes president for supposedly violating Whig principles even though they didn't have a platform in 40 1840 or in 1836 for that matter now uh 1844 against Polk one of the reasons was was one of the big things was annexation of Texas and um and when it came to Pennsylvania the tariff and Polk gives gives this speech that he is for some protection um and when Polk actually becomes president he signs the Walker tariff in 46 the Pennsylvanians are understandably angry but Henry Clay couldn't believe it when the Pennsylvanians chose him, chose Polk over him. But um, another big issue was Texas annexation, and Henry Clay um, believed in. Uh, he had he had said he is not against the idea of Texas annexation. It's just that he didn't want a war with Mexico, uh, and at the time. He said, at this time, we're going to get a war, or it's not going to be peaceful if we try to take Texas. And that was kind of like Van Buren's position, but Van Buren loses the nomination because of that um, to Polk, who was in favor of it, or in favor of Texas annexation. And Calhoun was interested in running for president at the time, but he, in 1843, but he drops out 
and then becomes Tyler's uh, Secretary of State um, not uh, next year. While as Tyler was thinking about becoming a third party and he needed Texas annexation to... He needed both the main parties to be against Texas annexation in order to have a chance. But because Polk was, won the no nomination... Tyler had to support him because he knew his chances were gone at that point. Um, Texas annexation, like it became about expanding slavery to some to a lot of people, about getting getting another slave state into the Union. And Polk, even though Polk was a slave owner, just like Clay, it would seem that Polk was more pro-slavery, even though. Polk wanted Oregon um, also to, to join the Union, which would, which would definitely not have slaves. Um, Polk was not was certainly not the biggest slave slavery um, champion, like you could say, compared to Calhoun. I remember when I was listening to uh, Cal John C. Calhoun, American Portrait by Margaret Mead. Polk had said to Calhoun, and I'm the president of the United States, not of the South. And deep down, Polk really hated Calhoun for he would Calhoun would do anything like to become president, including separate into another confederacy. But um, another reason why Polk wins in 1844 was the, the rise of the Liberty Party, which was an anti-slavery party. And they took more votes from Clay than they did the Democrats. Even And it's funny because Clay was part of a common theme in Clay losing these elections was at least... Um, his his uh views on his moderate supposed views on slavery. Um, he couldn't he couldn't satisfy the the hard um the hardcore ultras who wanted state and who were states' rights who all were also of course in favor of states' rights most of them um hardcore slavery supporters as well as the abolitionists the abolitionists really hated him including William Lloyd Garrison who was the editor of the Liberator newspaper um, constant attacks by him and also the the idea of colonization Henry Clay was the president of the American colonization uh, society, and which you know, John uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, Abraham Lincoln were also in favor of colonization. If you don't know what colonization is, it is the idea that to send blacks to the the to Africa, um, and uh, some were sent like to Liberia, which was until a few decades ago, 
it's considered a really good place by West African standards. Um, and there was a, a civil war there, and it was due to the fact that the former slaves from America would enslave the native population there and for generations until culminated into a, a military civil war. But Liberia was considered a really good place until recently. It it actually had slavery until yeah for the, in the twenty well into the twentieth century. Um, I remember Brian McClanahan in the previous uh, Abbeville Institute podcast explaining this, but um, what else is there? Um, his views on colonization, uh, like his moderate views on slavery, helped defeat him in certainly in 1844 and then in 1848 he uh his one of his biggest supporters john j crittenden um supports zachary taylor for wig president wig presidential candidate and i for and he and crittenden had done this before Clay had declared himself a candidate for the Whig not presidential nomination. Crittenden was like a loyal supporter of Clay's. He's I think 20 years younger than Clay. And yeah, he's also from Kentucky. And well, like I mean, I guess Crittenden's famous for the Crittenden Compromise, which was, you know, after Lincoln was dead. No, sorry, not Lincoln. Um, Henry Clay was dead. The Crittenden Compromise, which was, you know, worked out in um, after Lincoln was elected, would extend the Missouri Compromise line to the Pacific so that they, the slaves would, there would be slavery below the line, while as no slavery in the north, north of that line in the territories. And this probably would have prevented the southern states besides South Carolina from seceding. But uh, Lincoln was not the compromiser that Crittenden was, and certainly not Clay. Clay was known as a compromiser, a guy who would try to get to be in the middle. Well, I mean, in order to, he wanted to keep the Union together to advance his, his, uh, economic agenda <laughs> uh, but Taylor was uh, who Crittenden supported was everything that Clay dis despised like a military chieftain who wasn't even a good Whig and it was basically the same it, scenario in the 48 convention um well, Webster was also participating, but he was he had destroyed his chances when he decided to stay in John Tyler's cabinet while everyone else in the cabinet resigned after Tyler had vetoed the bank twice, the the charter of a new national bank twice. He uh so uh Scott was uh the nominee in fifty 
uh, in 48 and I mean when 52 like when basically when everyone else was dead Harrison was dead <laughs> Clay was dead I think he, yeah Clay was dead and Taylor was dead but uh, Zachary Taylor was uh, supported more even more by I, I guess southern Whigs because he was a slave owner who didn't say anything about slavery. He, he certainly did not talk about colonization. And he was a deep southerner. I guess he, he lived in um, Louisiana. And, his, and he would be the first president of the Deep South. And the Deep South wouldn't have another president until Lyndon Johnson from Texas. About a hundred years later, over a hundred years later. But uh, Zachary Taylor was ev eventually defeated. Uh, Lewis Cass, the northerner, northern Democrat from Michigan, who believed in popular sovereignty. Um, I could discuss all day about popular sovereignty, <laughs> um, but. Um, this is mostly focused on Henry Clay. Um, and James Clotter, the author, makes the case that there were just so many factors, so many different types of classes of people who had some issue with Henry Clay. And that's why he had lost the, the, the presidency all five times, all, or at least three times and then two times the nomination of his party. What else can I say? Um, and near the end, he explains that how John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi, the well, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi is the current speaker of the house and Boehner was the former speaker. They both looked up to Clay. And certainly both of them, you could say, don't uh, are, share some of his centralizing views on when it comes to the federal government and you know clay was a former speaker of the house um mitch mcconnell who's from kentucky and is the leader of the republicans in the senate also looks up to clay as someone who got got who who can get things done in the senate because he was a compromiser but on converse Rand paul who i really like did doesn't and who holds Clay's seat in the Senate, said he doesn't like Clay, and because of his compromise, he will not stand up for something. Or he, he made a speech in, when he became senator of what his views were. And, you know, I really like Rand Paul, and, you know, he's... You can, you can say he has libertarian views. He especially on foreign policy, which is really good. Uh, and, you know, he's Ron Paul's son. Um, and one more thing to talk about. We'll talk about current events. As you know, if you're, if you're watching this a few days ago, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the United States Supreme Court. And um, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas had a concurrent opinion about this. 
Um, this this case was known as like Dobbs versus like um, Jackson's Women's Health Organization or something, and the yeah overturned. Well, the Clarence, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the majority on this case, but when it came to overturning Roe v. Wade, he didn't side with them. Um, and Clarence Thomas gave a concurrent major- uh, concurrent opinion about this, how it didn't go far enough. He is against, or I might be getting this wrong. He's a, because there's also another couple of cases involving Second and First Amendment, like with regards to New York's New York City and like guns and uh, South Carolina football ch- coach being able to pray. Um, and the latest episode of the Brian McClanahan show talked about this is all due to incorporation in the 14th Amendment because when it comes to abortion they're using uh, substantive due process and it's good that Thomas is against this but he doesn't go far enough because he is still he is still favoring incorporation by the 14th amendment now to, now to be fair substantive due process was even before this it was during Dred Scott before which is before the 14th amendment I watched his uh, uh, Clarence Thomas's speech on Lincoln at Washington and Lee University about condemning Dred Scott and substantive due process. But uh, unfortunately, Thomas is uh, an, is a follower of Lincoln. He's Link, he, Thomas is a, a Straussian conservative. He certainly has nationalist bent even though he's considered the most conservative on the court and he's saying that um the he was saying that Dred Scott as well as the Kansas Nebraska Act were acting together even even though Dred Scott refutes Kansas Nebraska because Kansas Nebraska enshrines popular sovereignty which is that the states uh, that the people of the territories can decide on their own whether or not to allow slavery. Well, as Dred Scott said, no, only the states can do this. The territories and Congress cannot decide whether the territories can be, no, whether or not slavery is allowed. And Dred Scott used this idea of substantive due process, which, you know, it's uh, it's really... I can't say I fully understand it, but this is what this idea of substantive due process of creating rights, which is, and and then um, using these rights to enforce the Fifth Amendment property or life, life, liberty, and property without due process. So this whole people are saying substantive due process, which is which is supposedly different from procedural due process. Um, I'm not really a lawyer. It's really hard to understand. I'm sorry. But um, problem is Thomas 
it's good that he is against substantive due process, but it's bad that he is in favor of incorporating the 14th Amendment. His wiggle room is that First and Second Amendment actually are in the Constitution. So that's why he's in favor of incorporating those rights, like the right for freedom of religion in the football case and the right to bear arms in the New York case. So the problem is the conservatives are too embracive of the centralization of the 14th Amendment. Like Thomas is, is at least, it's good that he's against substantive due process, which is also, also 14th Amendment. But, um, and it goes before, the, the idea came before the 14th Amendment with Dred Scott. But he still needs to be, a, it's, it's not good that um, the conservatives are embracing incorporation because this is a centralizing doctrine. And if you live by incorporation, you die by incorporation. I, I understand Thomas says, okay, but these, these rights are actually in the Constitution. This right to bear arms, right to religious freedom. But that's not how the Bill of Rights was ratified. Incorporation was explicit, explicitly rejected by the Congress. Madison wanted it in the Bill of Rights, but it was expressly rejected. And... Um, and if you look at the slaughterhouse cases, um, which were passed not long after, not which were done like uh, held not long after the ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment, um, it was it's clear that they that the Fourteenth Amendment does not um, incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states. This the idea of incorporation becomes prominent later on in uh, when Hugo Black becomes uh, is is uh, on the Supreme Court. And uh, yeah, the, the 14th Amendment. Obviously, there are other problems with the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was never meant to incorporate. But there, um, I mean, you, you can say the 14th Amendment is unconstitutional because X, because it violates the ex post facto no ex post facto laws, which are essentially, you cannot make laws punishing people for th for crimes they committed before they were before they became crimes, which is what part of the Fourteenth Amendment does. It comes to like Confederate soldiers, and it was and. Ohio and Oregon rescinded their ratifications when they learned that the southern states were were forced to ratify the 14th Amendment in order to get representation back into the Congress. Um, one more. And the funny thing is, Maryland rescinded its ratification of the Corwin Amendment. If apparently you can rescind ratifications, then yeah, the Fourteenth Amendment really shouldn't continue to exist. If because Ohio and Oregon rescinded their ratifications, but you know, now even conservatives embrace the centralization due to the Fourteenth Amendment. And I know, like, 
in Canada and around the world, I guess, there are leaders who are virtue signaling about how they're how they stand for abortion. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of these leaders don't understand states' rights. It's fine. They they don't need to. It's not their country. They although they really should understand if like if they want to understand like if they're a federal country they should understand this though it would be good for them to understand and it's like Jean Charest and Patrick Brown don't really understand this because they they did this to virtue signal on on Twitter and about how they're pro-choice and it's just it's crazy how so several states have basically completely banned abortion or do not or allow it under very limited circumstances. Like I think Oklahoma basically completely banned it. And then also some other states like Texas. I know one guy on Twitter, Michael Tracy, called out Youngkin from Virginia and DeSantis from Florida for allowing it, like signing bills that allowed it up till 15 weeks when most abortions don't take place past 15, they take place within the 15-week mark. But, you know, um, each state's got to do what it, what it thinks is the best. This is, this is how abortion should be treated, not as a federal. Constitutionally, it's not federal. In Canada, Bernie explained that the difference is in Canada, the criminal, uh, the, the federal parliament has control over the, over the criminal code, which is true, but it is the provinces that provide the abortions with, through their socialist healthcare systems. So the provinces do play a role, certainly, but constitutionally, if you really want the restrictions, they come from the federal federal government, and it it might not happen because as long as Quebec is in this confederation, because there's not a single pro life MP or member of the National Assembly in Quebec who believes in this. Uh, the member of National Assembly is their provincial legislature. Um. Now, I'm running out of time here, but um, we'll see. Um, right now, there's a, a leadership race going on in Alberta. Um, I think I mentioned this before. Daniel Smith seems pretty strong when it comes to defending Alberta's sovereignty, even though you could say the, the provinces were never sovereigns in this confederation. Uh, and certainly there is no equivalent of the Tenth Amendment in in Canada. But um, we can definitely learn about being a more decentralized federation as Canadians by looking to America. Although, uh, certainly I, like if Alberta is considered the hardcore conservatives, like the Alberta conservatives, then... I don't really know if I like them because I like them too much because they do want 
more decentralization, but it's like a lot of them who consider themselves hardcore conservatives are also pro-abortion, and that's uh that's really off-putting. But um, uh, also Texas was like before before all of this abortion stuff, Texas um was thinking of um the Texas GOP in their their platform talked about several things though including wanting um be putting secession on the table in 2023 and i think that's amazing and i you know um once they fix their border i'm and if they secede i'm sure texas will be really nice oh but you'd have to probably avoid the dangerous areas like particularly the big cities like austin and dallas and um, it's not just the illegal Im- immigrants, it's like all the crime that they bring. And well, it's not just the illegal immigrants, I'm sure. But um, I'm sure we, if there's a national divorce in the United States, I'm, I'm sure that this would be good for, for, um, this would be really good. But anyways, uh, thank you for listening or watching this on YouTube or listening on anchor.fm or wherever you you get podcasts from. And uh, I'll s- see you all later. Uh, this has been Canadian Meets the South, episode 14. Thanks for watching. Bye.